Welcome to episode 50 of the podcast. I just saw that. It's very exciting. I've been doing this for 50 some odd times now. But this week, to date, is the most detailed, value-packed, and informative episode I have done. It is all about carbohydrates, which are really gets co-opted about polyunsaturated fatty acids, which is a whole different thing, which you'll see as we go through it. The main point of this is to talk about carbohydrates, whether or not they're making you fat, whether or not they're causing metabolic disease and diabetes, and we break all that stuff down with a somewhat detailed description of what this stuff actually means as we go through it, followed by some tangible steps you can do to improve your diet and understand what your daily practical implementation looks like. And I start off with a little bit of understanding or a little bit of preamble about how to understand some of the scientific research. So bear with me on that. But as long as you stick with it, I did my absolute best to make this palatable and uh, understandable for you. And if you want to go check out the show notes, as always, they're at the website under podcast. This is episode 50 and it has all the stuff I say, but written down in a way you can read through it and have a better understanding of it. I'm doing my best to make this good, but hopefully you enjoy it. It's the longest one to date. It's the best one to date, I think, but we'll see. And uh, I think the next step is get a little bit better microphone to record this stuff with. Otherwise, enjoy. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Average to Athletic Podcast. My name is Graham, and I'm your host, and today we're going to walk through part four of the nutrition series. And so this started off just being about carbohydrates and then it was going to be how carbs, if they make you fat, talk about diabetes, which is really a uh, bigger term for insulin resistance, talk about cardiovascular health and the relationship between carbohydrates, hypertension, hyperglycemia, all of that stuff, and gut health. And that obviously became way too much. And so I ended up Breaking those three down into three separate parts. So this one is about carbohydrates, weight gain, and diabetes or insulin resistance. And I'm developing this worrying trait of um, getting more and more involved in the research and the the creation and culmination process of the podcast. So before I go and do any of this stuff, I spend, I mean, this one was close to 30 hours at least of research, reading, podcasting, books, you name it, to put together an entire list of resources. And then I put that into a very detailed, thorough article. And then I read that mostly to a very truthful uh, in action. But if you if you want to actually go and read this, always go to the show notes, look at the article, and you can kind of get the, the this stuff written down. Because I want this to be detailed, I want it to be thorough, and I want it to be something that's usable for you in some form of evergreen fashion, more so than just, hey, here are my thoughts right off the hip. Because a lot of people, you know, I I live for podcasts, I listen to, you know, four to five hours a day, at least. And more often than not, you know, if it becomes something where you're just throwing general thoughts down, or there's not really much of a rhythm, or they don't necessarily conclude any type of meaningful lesson, then that isn't always beneficial for you. So Just know that everything I'm telling you today is something that's come from hours and hours and hours of research, uh, careful thought, um, and trying to be thorough articulation, an attempt at thorough articulation. But it doesn't mean it's all exactly right and it doesn't mean I'm going to nail it. So 
I reserve the right to be wrong. I'm going to do my best to not be so. But one thing you learn about nutrition, especially nutrition science, is that 50% of what we know now is wrong. We just don't know which 50%. So in many ways, I take and look... Well, let me step back. Whenever we're looking at any type of lesson from nutrition, there are three different patterns we go to, right? We look at the the research, what the studies show us. We look at the mechanistic view, how these things work. And then we look at the philosophical, why would this have made sense at any other point other than now, right? So when we're looking at the research perspective, there are what are called epidemiological research studies, which really are... That is how the majority of what nutrition research is done. And it's very limited and it's pretty poor in scope because they essentially say, hey, I'm going to just follow a bunch of people and a cohort of people from, you know, a thousand to a hundred thousand over a span of years. And we're going to ask them to fill out surveys. How much meat did you eat last year? How many vegetables? What do you do? How much sleep do you get? How do you manage your stress? And then they measured that to see how many people die, how many people get a certain amount of uh, specific diseases, etc. And then they try and draw conclusions from that. The best we can do is any type of correlation. That does not give us the right to say something causes something else. The gold standard, so to speak, of any type of research is what's called randomized control trials, which are basically where you have a randomized assortment of participants and you have one group that's a control where you don't do anything and you have another group where you enact some form of single variable change and you measure an outcome. Now, when it comes to nutrition, obviously this is good, but it's very hard because it takes time for this stuff to make change, and it's hard to find a group of people that will actually do things. It's hard to control things like calories, control for things like exercise, healthy user bias, etc. So while this stuff is good, it's, it's better than the epidemiological studies, it still falls short. Now, that doesn't mean we just throw it all out. It just means that every time you see some type of label in the news about, you know, eating this is going to make you more likely to die or eating this gives you cancer or, you know, this miracle drug, understand that it is generally sensationalized by the journalist and by the media as opposed to something that is bearing true causality from the research. And you also have to understand that anytime these things are published, you also have to look at the incentive. The people that are doing these research, the research, are incentivized to get things that are published in papers. If they are not published, they're not going to get funding and grants. And if they don't get that, they don't get money, they don't get to continue their lab and their study and all that stuff. So it's important to realize that they're going to be more likely to read in a certain conclusion of the results that may not be a bare witness from exactly what happened or... They're going to be putting things out with a hopeful or like an upplaying or downplaying something that gets sensationalized by the media, right? So just understand there's that. Now, while that stuff is valuable and it's in many ways some of the best things that we can do to inform our understanding, I find a lot more value from the mechanistic understanding and then the philosophical. So understanding, while sure, it may make sense that we can look at some of the stuff we have today, would this have borne out any type of concrete evidence in that did people have access would this have made sense a hundred a thousand a million years ago in the same way it does now i know this is something i'll come back to later but the idea of red meat being unhealthy now while sure you may be able to look at certain studies that epidemiologically show some type of correlation between red meat and cancer or early mortality which are always confounded with health healthy user bias or any type of lack of nuance between distinct 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 
having a distinction between red meat and fast food, for example. But the question I would ask is, people have eaten red meat for thousands, if not millions of years as part of being hunters, gatherers that we cultivated and lived and followed ruminant animals. So how does the idea that red meat gives us cancer bear out in the larger scale when we developed by eating that we evolved as part of with this as part of our diet that's one example of something from a philosophical perspective just to think about how this stuff bears out in our history and then third the mechanistic is something that we want to look and say how do these things work now this is harder to do because you can't cut somebody open that's alive and look at some of the functions in the same way you could you know dissect and take apart uh, an animal right um, it's a little bit harder to do some of the stuff in in humans, but there are certain things like a, uh, a mitochondrion, which we'll talk about later, that has a formation. That's it's something called an electron transport chain, which is in a process by which we oxidize fats to create ATP, which is a stored form of energy. That mitochondria is is maintained for from all the way from our species branching from C. elegans, which is a worm, just a tiny organism with a few hundred. So I don't want to get over my depth here, but it's a very simple organism to understand. And we can look and see how does this process work in these things and understand that that process is maintained for mice, for for plants across all the way into humans. So understanding this, and this is where you'll see a lot of distinction in terms of the role that LDL uh, and cholesterol will play in the body, the role of insulin, things like that. We can get a very good idea, but there are certain things that you'd be surprised. They're still not, let's say... Um, a unified definition on how these things work across the scientific community. Much as much as you'd think they would, the idea like how does type two diabetes diabetes exactly start? What's the role of cholesterol in the body? How does hypertension and uh, myocardial infarction, which is like a heart attack, how does that stuff happen? Right? Um, you know, even then, like how does the brain work in many ways? And we can do a lot to understand these things, but still, there's things like sleep that are in many ways a mystery to us. So. Take that all, and and as the preamble, I'll get to the actual meat of what we want to talk about today, but understand that whenever you are listening to something that has any type of of nuance or, or direction towards carbohydrate or deep unpacking and uh, delivering some type of scientific lesson for you, understand that there is no perfect science. Science is a process in and of itself of questioning and testing hypotheses in a way that allows us to learn and grow. There is no one full stop. We know the answer. The best thing we can do is look at these three forms, the research, the philosophy, and the mechanistic uh, understanding of how it works, and draw as close to we can of causality inference from that. That does not mean we all have we have it all down. That being said, I'm going to give you a my best attempt at summarizing what I think are a very uh, truthful, mechanistic, and philosophical perspective that is backed by research. I'm just not going to bore you with all the uh, the studies and all that stuff. I, I like to weave together together a narrative in a way that helps you understand it. That's kind of how my brain works. About carbohydrates. Because carbohydrates have become the new debated macronutrient. In the 90s and 2000s, it was low fat. We want to get rid of fat and all this stuff. And it, these just go through circles, right? And it's become part of the cultural lexicon to blame carbohydrates for everything from causing diabetes to those extra 20 pounds of body fat in your midsection. I promise you, you've heard someone say, yeah, it's all the carbs you're eating. It's like, but what does that actually mean? How much of that is actually factual? So in this article and in or podcast, depending on how you're consuming it, 
I'm going to break down the entire conversation into something that's hopefully palatable, pun, pun intended, <laughs> uh, uh, and full of useful information so that you can have a better understanding of the role that carbohydrates play in the body. So to paint the big picture up front for you, or I guess the, at this point, you know, so at the end of the first quarter, um, I'll try to summarize this whole article here. So put simply, carbs do not cause diabetes. They do not make you fat, and they're not the sole cause of metabolic dysfunction, which is another way of saying insulin resistance. Carbs are also not essential for survival. While there are essential fatty acids and amino, essential amino acids, which are the building blocks of protein, there is no such thing as an essential carbohydrate. Ultimately, pathological insulin resistance, which is uh, what happens with hyperglycemia and leads to diabetes, Metabolic dysfunction and cardiovascular disease are caused by caloric overfeeding from processed carbohydrates and excess polyunsaturated fatty acids in the presence of a sedentary lifestyle. Now, if you want to take me at face value, you're good to go. The big picture here is that carbs, it is not as simple to say, just don't eat carbs. And I'm going to break all this stuff much further over the course of this podcast. But if there's one thing you can take away from it, it's that the unholy triad of metabolic disease is processed carbohydrates, refined fats, mainly omega-6 polyunsaturated fatty acids, and sedentary lifestyle. My goal in this is to help you understand that carbs are not bad, and the solution is not as simple as eating a low-carb diet. Though, we'll get to why that might be a beneficial thing for you. But first, let's start about defining what we even mean when we're talking about carbohydrates. Because before people even start talking about this, more often than not, people are talking past one another. You get people that are in the low-carb, keto, carnivore camp, they're like, carbs are bad. And then you get people that are in the high-carb, you know, let's say it may be plant-based, high-carb, low-fat camp that say carbs, you know, processed carbs and sugar. Like, it's like, what are we talking about here? And at the end of the day, most, let's say, perspectives on any type of nutrition agree on these main things and I'll come back and define what polyunsaturated fatty acids are for you shortly so don't be caught up on the fact that that sounds fancy because it's really not but let's talk about carbs first so carbs are one of three macronutrients fat and protein being the other two essentially they are simple sugars grouped into different combinations so think of it like legos while you can stack a bunch of Legos together to make a more complex configuration, like a stadium or a, you know, the Battlestar Galacta, what any of those Star Wars things, um, I'm not as nerdy as I want to be, so I can't even remember what the Star Wars ships are called. So we're gonna just ignore that. But whether you're making these, you're taking the individual Legos and you're making a more complex configuration, the building blocks are always the same, right? When it comes to carbs, each Lego is a monosaccharide or the basic simple sugar. That's the fancy word. So complex carbs are just bigger Lego structures. So that's the difference between like whole wheat and white bread. People say it's, you know, it's a complex carbohydrate or there's good, bad, and carb, good carbs and bad carbs. All they're saying is that these bigger Lego structure, so to speak, they're all digested down into the same single Lego units to be absorbed and metabolized in the body. All the big distinction here is that these big complex, big whole wheat fiber and all this stuff, they're just bigger structures, but they still break down to the same thing. It just takes longer to do, right? After they're broken down, they're then directed for use in certain tissues or packaged for storage. Now, the big distinction I want to make up front is that there is a world of difference between processed carbs and the carbs that are found in whole foods. Now, processed carbs have been refined or manipulated to strip away the intrinsic components that would otherwise make them less palatable. 
In other words, carbs found in like whole food sources are packaged with fiber or protein or some form of a grain that slows down or limits the digestion. Like think about plain rice or like you know quinoa or plain broccoli, stuff like that. It's, it's, it's pretty hard to overeat that stuff, right? Refined flour or sugar, for example, on the other hand, are highly digestible. They've literally been broken down. They've been stripped of all these things that otherwise make it less palatable. And while that may sound like a good thing for your body in terms of how digestible it is, your body did not absorb, evolve with these food sources, right? They've, these refined and processed food sources. And as a result, the normal satiety and digestion signaling pathways that would typically limit overconsumption and direct proper absorption are disrupted, resulting in increased insulin activity and weight gain, meaning that the way your body would have normally processed this stuff those typical signals are not there. It's like if you're driving down a road and someone's taken off the marking on the road and the street signs, the thing that would slow you down or like keep you intact and from running off the other side of the road, they're not there. So you just kind of eat a lot of them and don't even realize you're doing it. So put simply, while refined carbohydrates taste good and can play a potential role in athletic performance that uses glucose as a substrate for energy, these foods have no place in your diet from a typical day-to-day perspective, right? And we'll talk about the, the athletics perspective later on, but whole food sources of carbohydrates are a different matter. They are fine to eat in moderation, assuming that they don't cause negative side effects or otherwise limit your ability to get nutrition. Meaning, if you don't have some type of celiac disease and bread is okay, then you can, that's, that's one source, right? But if you have problems digesting any type of like specific plant matter, a lot of fiber or gluten or corn or soy or whatever these things are, that's a that's a confounding factor that would throw off whether or not you should eat that carbohydrate. Now, the bigger issue is that most people do not understand the root causes of pathological insulin resistance, metabolic dysfunction, cardiovascular disease, and systemic inflammation. And as a result, they just blame carbs. Now, while an excess consumption of carbs is part of the equation, it's not that simple. So let's break that down. Now, first, we're going to tackle what pathological insulin resistance means. And before we jump in, let's get a better understanding of what insulin is. So insulin is a hormone that's produced by the pancreas. It is commonly referred to as the hormone of storage in that it helps to store energy from the blood. Now, even though that's the main thought, like kind of its landmark and understanding for what it does, insulin has several other roles in the body. Now, primarily insulin functions as an anti-catabolic signal that in that it prevents the breakdown of tissues. Think anabolic, anabolic steroids are building up, catabolic is breaking down. So anti-catabolic is the prevention of breaking down. Now, I know you think, why would you call it anabolic? Because it's not actively building anything, it's just preventing things from falling down, right? So if you look at a retaining wall, that's not building anything, well, it's not it's not creating anything, but it's just holding things in place. Now, Insulin, the first and foremost job of insulin is that it is tasked with ensuring that there's always some form of energy available, right? Not too much and not too little. Now, insulin is released in response to rising levels of glucose in the blood. Now, this generally happens when carbohydrates are broken down, but it also happens at a lower level when you eat enough protein. Now, remember, proteins are made out of amino acids, and there are certain amino acids that are called glucogenic, which means that they are metabolized similarly. I think the Krebs cycle, if I'm getting my biology correct uh they're metabolized similarly to, to carbohydrates and so they can they are glucogenic meaning that they are used for gluconeogenesis and which is a process of making glucose from other substrates and that can trigger insulin 
Now, insulin works in a four or five part series, depending on how you count the thing, count the stages. So stage one, at low levels, insulin inhibits glucagon release from the pancreas. And glucagon is a hormone that promotes the breakdown of stored glycogen in the liver to glucose. Meaning, if you don't have any glucose, your pancreas would release glucagon and say, hey, break down some of that stored stuff. You know, we got some of those stocks or bonds or whatever you have. We need some more money, so they're going to break it down and release it. If you have glucose, you don't need that. So first, insulin stops that. Second, at higher levels of insulin release, so once it gets triggered, insulin inhibits gluconeogenesis at the liver. Remember, gluconeogenesis is the creation of glucose from a non-glucose source. So that's from free fatty acids, which are the breakdown of fats, or amino acids, specifically the glucogenic ones. Now, insulin inhibits gluconeogenesis, means it stops that because it says, hey, don't make any more glucose because we got some in the liver. We just ate, or we got some in the blood. We just ate, we don't need any more. Third, and this could be third and fourth, insulin moves out into circulation and acts as an anti-catabolic agent for muscle and fat tissue. Remember, anti-catabolic prevents the breakdown. Essentially, it prevents breakdown of muscles into amino acid and adipose tissue in the fatty acid. And the breakdown of fat is called lipolysis. So it stops those. It says muscles. Don't break down. We got it. So it's fats. Hold on to your fats. We don't need any more. So remember, insulin is tasked with making sure there's some energy available. Not too much, not too little. And finally, once levels are sufficiently high, meaning there's enough glucose in the blood, insulin acts to promote glucose uptake into the fat and muscle cells. So once it's clear that, okay, we got a lot of this stuff, at first it's like, hey guys, we're good, we don't need any more, and then it says, okay, we got a lot, now let's get rid of this stuff. It goes around and says, hey, fat cells, muscle cells, here, take this stuff, we're good to go. We need you to store this because we need it out of the blood. Now, this is when the glucose floating around the blood is pulled out for storage. So those are the four or five part series that insulin does. Now in low carb diets where glucose is not supplied from the food source, the body responds by switching into a state of what's called physiological insulin resistance. Remember, it's different than pathological, physiological insulin resistance or glucose sparing. So now understand this is not the same thing as pathological insulin resistance that leads to hyperglycemia, which is elevated, chronically elevated blood glucose levels, and increased risk of diabetes and cardiovascular disease. It's very different. Glucose sparing, remember the physiological insulin resistance, is generally a positive phenomenon that occurs when carbs are scarce, as in when you're fasting or you're in a low-carb diet. Now, why would you want to do this? Well, certain organs and tissues prefer carbohydrates as their main fuel source, like the brain, the testes, uh, the red blood cells, and I believe the kidneys, but don't quote me on that. So our body has the capacity to create glucose from non-glucose fuel sources like fat and protein through a process called, good memory, it's gluconeogenesis. Remember, that's where we're making glucose from these non-glucose sources. Now, when dietary sources of glucose are low, cells, so mainly the muscles, this is mainly something that happens at the muscles, that can function off of non-carb sources will do so in an effort to spare this newly created glucose for the cells that require it. Hence the name glucose sparing. Now, most of the muscles will function off of fatty acids, so that's where you become fat adapted and you're eating fats. Your muscles can function off of that. Um, and so that, that's where they'll say, hey, other people need it. I'm good to go. I got another food source. So that's, I will spare the glucose for the other things. Now, this physiological insulin resistance is an adaptation that allows for greater resiliency in periods of food scarcity. On the other hand, pathological insulin resistance, which is not what you want, that is a negative situation that occurs from two major pathways. So 
One could be widespread widespread systemic inflammation, and two is the unholy triad that I mentioned earlier. Remember, that's refined carbs, excess polyunsaturated fatty acids, and a sedentary lifestyle. So we're, and the other thing too is we're not all dealt in even hand genetically. So different people have different levels of tolerance for how much fat they can accumulate before becoming pathologically insulin resistant. For example, Caucasians are able to handle a significant amount of body fat before their adipose tissue becomes dysfunctional, but people of Asian descent, on the other hand, have much lower tolerance, meaning just because someone's overweight doesn't mean that their body is, in, uh, let's say, um, insulin resistant in a bad way, but just because you're underweight doesn't mean you can't also develop this. So it's, you know, understand that this stuff happens and it's not as simple as just say, hey, look at you, you're overweight, you got this problem. There are other things going on if you're overweight, but it's not as simple as that. But in general, it's almost always safe to assume that if you're carrying extra body weight or your blood sugar is high, you got some type of systemic problem that's going on. So let's talk about the first case of prolonged systemic inflammation. So the body switches into glucose sparing mode, meaning it's not taking up mostly in the muscles, not taking up glucose, but this is across the board, all cells, so the fat cells, the muscle cells and the liver are trying to not take glucose so that you can spare it for the immune system. Now, while this is helpful for short-term infections and disease, this becomes a recipe for disaster when it comes to autoimmune disease, environmental toxin exposure, chronic stress, or metabolic dysfunction. Essentially, the body is in overdrive mode and it creates excess glucose to deal with a prolonged situation that is not evolutionarily consistent. Now, this eventually leads to weight gain, sick or unhealthy adipose tissue, and self-propagating scenario where the cells become less and less responsive to insulin. Because the hyperglycemia and the type 2 diabetes that happen in response to this is an unfortunate consequence of your body's best efforts to fight off an enemy caused by our modern diet and lifestyle. Meaning, unless you're like sick and you have some long-term thing like cancer or something that's basically killing the body, there is not a situation where let's say you would be in this chronic straight, chronic st- state of stress or you'd be chronically exposed to toxins or something like that your body's always having to deal with. That's where your body, even in the best of effort, is just always, always going, going, going. And it's when you get some type of adrenal fatigue, you get some type of just overwork and your body can't keep up with it anymore. And this hyperglycemia that results is an unintended consequence, Right. Now, don't worry, if that doesn't quite click, I'm going to break that pathway down to a little bit more detail for the second cause of pathological insulin resistance, which is our problematic eating patterns. So, in order to do this, I'm going to hearken back to my best attempt to explain the reactive oxygen species theory of obesity, which was the last part, and this will build off of that, which I highly recommend you go back to listen and you know, to part three of this series if you haven't already, but I'll quickly summarize the theory again here. Now, in a short note beforehand, if this stuff is a lot, do not feel bad. It's taken me hours and hours to understand it. I'm trying to put it together in a very straightforward and meaningfully understandable way for you. But do not feel bad if it feels confusing because, you know, it's it's a lot. But it's very valuable to understand because this is so how you understand what's happening in your body. All right, let's talk about this. So fat cells are metabolized by a process called beta oxidation in the mitochondria. Remember, the mitochondria is a little organelle inside your cell that is called the powerhouse because it makes energy. Because of their physical structure, saturated fats are oxidized 
or read also metabolized slightly differently than unsaturated fats, unsaturated. Essentially, they create more reverse electron transfer, which is a process where the electrons that would normally go through the channel are kicked back, and that creates more reactive oxygen species. These reactive oxygen species are an important and powerful satiety signal to the fat cells into the brain. So put simply, when you digest saturated fats, you get fuller faster, are less likely to overeat, and develop insulin-resistant fat cells. We'll come back to that in a second. Now, unfortunately, mainstream medicine encourages people to avoid eating saturated fats because they produce reactive oxygen species. Now, while reactive oxygen species do cause damage to proteins and DNA, your body has several ways to handle them easily via oxidative stress, like heat or sauna exposure, cold exposure, ice baths, cold showers, exercise, sleep, sunlight exposure, and just to name a few. Your body naturally deals with these things. You can also consume antioxidants to get rid of them, but that's a little bit different. Again, if you want a more detailed thing, go back and listen to part three. When you consume unsaturated fats, specifically polyunsaturated fatty acids, you do not get this reactive oxygen species production. And this means you're not starting down, you are starting down the pathway of metabolic disease. So we'll touch on that in a moment. So you might be wondering why you'd want insulin-resistant fat cells, because isn't the goal to be more insulin-sensitive, meaning that your body is more sensitive to insulin and responds to lower doses, because in diabetes, your body becomes pathologically insulin-resistant. Now, while insulin-sensitive fat cells do pull more glucose out of the blood cells and create a short-term improvement in blood glucose, this comes at the expense of long-term health and function. So, if you have insulin-sensitive fat cells, they are responding to insulin and they are pulling insulin out, but that creates a shift in their fundamental function over time. So you do not want insulin-sensitive fat cells. And I'll talk about this more in a second. Only saturated fats create the reactive, reactive oxygen species that signal for insulin-resistant fat cells. Polyunsaturated fatty acids do not have this effect, meaning that fat cells stay insulin-sensitive. Remember that the third function of insulin is to prevent catabolic activity at fat and muscle cells. This means that if a fat cell is sensitive, also understand responsive to insulin, it will stop releasing fatty acids. It's still absorbing glucose, but it's no longer releasing fatty acids via lipolysis. This means that the fat cell is getting bigger and you don't want that. Now, if a fat cell is insulin resistant, it will continue to release fatty acids regardless of whether or not the glucose is present. The fat cell is still taking up glucose, but it's not getting bigger because the fat cell fatty acid release is matching or exceeding the uptake. Now, if that doesn't make sense, do not feel bad. This analogy will help you understand. Think about it like a sink. The water from the tap is running, and as long as the drain is open, everything is great. Insulin acts like a plug, however. If the fat cell is insulin sensitive, the plug stops the outflow of water, the sink overflows. If the fat cell is insulin resistant, the drain stays open, the water flows out. So the tap is always running. You are always absorbing glucose at some level. That's what even, even if you have diabetes, in people with diabetes, the fat cells are still actually absorbing more glucose. The question is whether or not that what they're absorbing if the energy can also leave. And if you have a closed environment like a cell, it can only get so big. If the fat cell is responsive to insulin, it plugs the drain. If the fat cell is not responsive to insulin, it keeps the drain open and we're all good. Now, 
This is where things run off the rails. In the scenario where the adipose tissue or the fat cells are insulin sensitive and are not releasing fatty acids because remember the sink is plugged up, insulin has stopped the outflow. Why would it do that is a good question because remember it's preventing the catabolic activity of breaking down fat cells because it's saying we've got plenty of energy in the blood. We don't need any more. So it says fat cells stop releasing fatty acids and so they do. Because they got it in there. But, and this is what I'm getting at, is this is why people will say if you cut out your saturated fat, your blood sugar goes up and it gets better. But it's a very short-term thing. Now, if the sink is plugged up, these fat cells keep getting bigger and bigger. Because they're not releasing it, but they're still uptaking. At a certain point, they pop. Just like the button on a pair of jeans is getting stretched further and further, the cell is, can no longer absorb more and it starts to spew out fatty acids. The problem is that the fat cell is now now sick, and it's also interfering with normal hormone signaling. Adipose tissue is hormonally active in that it can create signals that dictate hunger, satiety, and metabolic activity. When these cells become ill, these normal mechanisms are disrupted as well. The fatty acids that leak out of these fat cells are delivered to the liver, which operates on a supply-driven basis. If substrate, if stuff is flowing, is showing up, it needs to be dealt with. So. Instead of accumulating amino acids and free fatty acids, which are more acidic and have a, they're more toxic to and accumulate than excess glucose, the liver converts those into glycogen to be stored or glucose and because it's just a less, to less toxic form to be circulating around the blood. Now, remember, insulin would be preventing gluconeogenesis, which is taking these fat cells and making them into glucose. That's what insulin is doing. So it's telling the liver to not do it, but the liver is saying, hey, we just got to deal with this stuff because it's showing up. Now, it's important to remember that this is all happening in the unholy triad, generally in sedentary individuals. If the body was moving and actually burning stored glycogen, which is the, sorry, if it's burning and used, sorry, if the body was moving and actually burning stored glycogen, which is a stored form of glucose, or using the available glucose in the bloodstream, or using the free fatty acids, the liver would convert these available substrates into glycogen to replace the energy that was used, and then you'd be good. But since this isn't happening when you're sitting on the couch, the liver has no choice but to ship off the newly created glucose back in the blood. Because the glycogen, the muscles are stuffed, the fat cells are stuffed, the liver is stuffed, you just can't push this glucose anymore, it can't be stored, so it just gets shipped out in the blood. And so where does that glucose go? Well, it triggers even more insulin to be released from the pancreas, which directs the glucose in the fat cells because the fat cells are just doing everything. They're their absolute best to take in more glucose. But they're actually, they're, but they're already overstuffed and they just keep leaking out more free fatty acids. They just, they have, they're, they're going to burst and they just can't hold it all in. And where do these free fatty acids go? They go back in the blood and they get circulated back down to the liver and the cycle continues. The liver takes the free fatty acids, turns them into glucose, sends it back out the fatty, and it just keeps going more and more. All the while, this stuff is triggering more and triggering more and more insulin. Now, the death now happens slowly as the liver starts to turn some of the fat into some of this glucose into fat through a process called de novo lipogenesis. Now, this is basically the creation of fat from a new source. So de novo, the new lipogenesis, well, it's new, new fat creation. Now, this is stored in the liver as what's called hepatic fat, H-E-P-A-T-I-C, hepatic fat, 
and eventually leads to non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. Now this excess fat that eventually will damage the beta cells in the neighboring pancreas, which those are the cells responsible for releasing insulin, and that causes a lowering of HDL cholesterol and increases your triglycerides and increases creates widespread inflammation as the liver functions less and less. And yes, this is this is a direct lead into cardiovascular disease, which we'll talk about in the next portion of this series. Now, understand that little by little, your body is starting to fall apart, and it's. And we'll talk about where the glucose is coming from, but while this is all happening, you are getting fatter. You're putting on more visceral fat. Your fat cells are expanding. Your visceral fat, meaning the fat that's inside your organs as opposed to subcutaneous fat, which you're also putting on as well. You're becoming more and more pathologically insulin resistant. Eventually, this can lead to type 2 diabetes onset. The higher the blood glucose, so diabetes have a higher blood glucose, right? But in reality, it's only partially, and it's actually very small from their diet, meaning that when they eat, their body is t- dealing with that glucose and, and uh, let's say, uh, shoving it away and putting it away. Most of the blood glucose, most of the glucose that's in their blood is coming from the liver that's created in their own body. So it's from this cycle. So their fat cells are actually absorbing more glucose in a diabetic setting, but the leaking fatty acids from these sick adipose tissues are forcing the liver into gluconeogenesis at an ever greater rate. And this creates a snowball effect that's self-propagating. The liver makes glucose, glucose gets sent down the bloodstream, it triggers insulin, insulin shoves in the fat cells, fat cells leak it back out and go into fatty acids, get released into the, glu- the, into the blood, it goes to the liver, and it just goes more and more and more. So here's the thing. Notice that I didn't mention dietary carbs or sugar once in all of that. That's because they aren't the cause. While you, they certainly can play a part, the ultimate criminal that sparks the whole thing off is excess consumption of polyunsaturated fatty acids in the presence of a caloric surplus and a sedentary lifestyle. Now, the biggest problem for refined processed carbohydrates is that they are highly palatable, low in nutrient density, they easily trigger insulin release, and they significantly increase the likelihood of a caloric surplus. And as a final note on this, the fat you eat is the fat you store. If you eat saturated fats or carbohydrates, your body will store those saturated fats. This means that when you metabolize these fats later on, you're using saturated fats, which create reactive oxygen species, which signal satiety, which create insulin resistant fat cells, all good things. But when you consume polyunsaturated fatty acids, you store polyunsaturated fatty acids. This means that you'll metabolize polyunsaturated fatty acids for the same amount of calories. And this means that you're not creating reactive oxygen species and the normal adipose tissue function is disrupted, i.e. you will store more fat for the same amount of calories. Now, a quick note, remember, what are polyunsaturated fatty acids? They are structurally slightly different, but these are going to be your omega-3, omega-6s, which we're specifically talking about omega-6s, but even omega-3s in excess, you know, these things made up about one so omega-6s which are high in nuts seeds vegetable oils seed oils corn soy and poultry and pork that is fed very conventional diets of corn and soy these used to make up about one to two percent of our total fat calories now we're going to talk about the solution with this in a second because the solution is simple. It's avoiding excess polyunsaturated fatty acids. Now, 
These are required by the body, of course, but only in small amounts. So in practicality, the best thing you can do is to avoid any excess that doesn't come from a naturally occurring source like eggs or meat. Generally speaking, as long as you avoid vegetable and seed oils, you're winning the battle. Now, while this perfect storm of excess polyunsaturated fatty acids, caloric surplus from processed carbs, and sedentary lifestyle would have been close to impossible to achieve at any point in human history, it is far too common now. And I'm sure you're reading this and thinking, or listening to this and thinking, just stop eating and go work out or something. <laughs> and you're not wrong. The problem is that we don't have the luxury of this cellular play-by-play as it's happening. Because food is so emotional and so easily available, it's become far too easy to dig a hole that's difficult to get out of. Especially when the very foods we're told to eat, i.e. healthy vegetable oils and seed oils, are actually the root cause of the whole scenario. And I, I know you're listening, it's like, this is supposed to be about carbs and it's still polyunsaturated fatty acids. It's because carbs get blamed for a lot, but they're not the mainstream culprit. And so you might be thinking, why isn't the mainstream narrative on these polyunsaturated fatty acids that are really high in vegetable and seed oils changing? And that's a great question, which I don't know the answer. I don't know why it's so difficult for people to look at things from a different light and say that whatever is happening is in our major mainstream diet and nutrition is not doing us any good. I was just reading a uh, article the other day saying that the United States is one of three major countries in the entire world that the average expectance of a healthy lifespan has gone down in the last 10 years. And the other two have civil wars and major chaos and violent disruption in their, in their societies. It's asinine. The United States is like... When it comes to health metrics, we are so far behind everything else and we're only getting worse. It's something's got to change. And the sad thing is that the reality of most of our dietary guidelines that we are given are the result of, as we talked about at the beginning, this questionable epidemiological studies, backroom deal making in between people who, you know, like they have a specific type of let's say monocrop subsidies that are happening and they want to continue that or they're, you know, trying to, let's say Coca-Cola paying researchers to push and show the fats a problem instead of sugar. I mean, like, it, it's crazy when you start to think about some of this stuff. And I don't want to sound too conspiratorially minded, but there's a lot of money that goes into making these uh, dietary uh, guidelines for our, us. And, and past that is a lot of ideological thinking that's frankly plant-based. So like, you know, plant biased, I should say. So the vegetable and seed oils are a replacement for the saturated fat that's typically coming from animal foods. And if it, you admitted that these refined oils, meaning the refined vegetable and seed oils, aren't healthy, that would mean supporting a narrative where animal foods are actually useful and nutritious. And I'll talk more about that in the future, but for now, it's just remember, there was a time where mainstream medicine supported cigarettes as healthy. In you know, we'll talk about some of these things when it comes to like why everything is so plant biased and plant forward. And I don't want to sit here and say the vegetarian is a bad thing. It's a much better step than anybody eating the typical fare of American food. But the issue is that you see this back and forth thing where there's just no leeway to say that animal foods or animal fats are healthy, and therefore you have to do everything you can to bend over backwards and say, well, vegetable and seed oils are working. They're doing good. You know, we need to eat less meat. That's the problem. People are eating less meat. The problem is that we're getting worse and less healthy, and it's not solving the problem. So if you were to find yourself in this downward spiral, or you at least understand that you're not handling insulin well, what can you do? Well, first, 
Let's understand that this process didn't happen overnight. It will take time for your body to heal. But the good news is that in most cases, you can absolutely recover. The first step is to stop digging yourself into a hole. And now my first recommendation to do that is to cut out the excess polyunsaturated fatty acids so that your adipose tissue can start to function properly. This means absolutely no vegetable or seed oils, no corn, no soy, and minimize pork and poultry that have been conventionally raised. And also stay away from nuts and seeds to start too. Now, what do you replace these with? Saturated fats, you know, like the type that come naturally from animal foods. And I guess a quick note on nuts and seeds, those are fairly, relatively speaking, high in the polyunsaturated omega-6 fatty acids. But we'll come back to that in a later part. Once you've got that down, you absolutely have to get rid of the processed and refined carbohydrates. I'm talking sugars, wheat, sodas, juices, and all the other processed junk that you know you shouldn't that know you know shouldn't be in your pantry. This not only removes the most insulin triggering foods from your diet, but it also will go a long way towards getting you out of the chronic caloric surplus. And what do you replace these with? Real food. I'm a big fan of animal-based foods like meat, fish, and organs, but even basing your diet off mostly vegetables and fruit would be a huge step forward, a huge step forward. And finally, you have to start moving. Literally, get off the couch and go for a walk. While the best, while the biggest battle is fought in the kitchen, you have to start using the stored glycogen and energy excess in your body, or else you will stay stuck in the cycle of high blood sugar and overstuffed fat cells. No. This does not mean that you have to start crushing high-intensity workouts on day one. Your goal is to incorporate movement consistently throughout the day that will get your blood flowing without pushing you to an exertion that will hike your hunger and lower your metabolism later on. Now, while I'm sure this may sound like a lot, it's a necessity if you want to prevent irreparable damage. And yes, this will take time. While you'll likely start feeling better after you bust through the cravings and desires in the first few weeks... It'll take months, potentially years, for your body to fully heal and reclaim your ideal level of metabolic health. The most important part is that you stay consistent with whatever you do. Even if you quote-unquote mess up, keep showing up daily and you will see results eventually. So why do we eat so many carbs anyways? We're finishing up. I know, I promise. We're on the uh, the back half, the, the back nine of this long thing, but this is a little bit more uh, tangible take-home steps. So... Why do we eat so many carbs anyways? Well, the simple answer is that they are cheap and easy to produce. While the ability to farm and produce food that's scalable and easy to store solved the problem of starvation and famine that has haunted humanity for all of existence, this convenience came with its own problems. Over the years, we became became more efficient at harvesting these crops, developing huge swaths of land for growing one single crop at a time, and we created a bunch of pesticides to fight off insects and little rodents. The pressure to make more for less stripped the soil of nutrients and ushered in the advent of genetically modified organisms, resulting in an ever-increasing availability of low-quality foods. This abundance opened the door for new scientific projects like high-fructose corn syrup, vegetable and seed oils, and cheapened alternatives to real food. In the last few hundred years, these options have slowly replaced whole food and animal-based products that had filled our diet for the last several million years. And now the government recommends 11 to 7 to 11 servings of whole grains each day, as if whole wheat bread is an essential nutrient. The food pyramid has become like, it's just, it's absurd. It's absolutely ridiculous that it's, it's become a ridiculous suggestion that has led millions of people down the path of metabolic disease and insulin resistance. So 
Why has this plant forward ideology become the major narrative from the so-called health experts? Is that the reality is that there's a strong anti-animal bias that's pushed from proponents of a plant-based diet that use health and sustainability arguments to further their cause. Now, I, I know, I know what it sounds like, and at the risk of sounding conspiratorially minded, go Google health foods and tell me how much red meat you see on the image search. Like just type in, pause this, go to your phone, go to Google, go to images and type health foods. You will see nothing but vegetables. The reality is that the standard American diet is plant-based. People have cut out meat, especially red meat, at higher and higher quantities. Americans are eating their whole grains and their whole wheat bread. And what has it gotten us? Close to a trillion dollars each year in spending on preventable diseases. The science and research do not back up their pers- the perspective that an animal-based eating pattern is unhealthy or, ta- or a tax on the environment. Regardless of how much data massaging goes into the studies, these things are not shown. At the end of the day, whatever diet you choose to follow is a big step forward from the usual junk food and mindless eating that most people engage in. There is absolutely nothing wrong about a high-carb diet, but it doesn't make it an ideal eating pattern. Even if you're one of the rare individuals who doesn't suffer from food sensitivities, it's hard to get all your nutrition in. The point in case here is the fact that you need fat to absorb several key vitamins, like vitamins A, D, E, and K. And if we look at our human evolution in relation to the foods that we relied upon, Plant foods were really a fallback food that we consumed when animal foods weren't available. So I'm sure some people will say, well, that's not true. I can't believe that. I like my vegetables. And, you know, maybe some people, I would be surprised if you still put up with me at this point if you are a vegetarian. But who knows? If that statement offends you, I'd simply like to point out that our current experience with food is highly unnatural. At no point in time before now could we walk into a food store and find a full section of vegetables and fruit available year-round. What did we do before the miracle of worldwide transportation and monocrop agriculture? Well, they, they certainly didn't have access to mangoes in Canada in the winter. They didn't have access to many plants at most places at most times of the year. Now, that's not to say that carbs can't play a valuable part as a, of a whole food nutrient-dense diet, but this luxury is a modern convenience that's compared when, it's, when compared to our evolution as hunters and meat eaters. So, you know, the question then becomes how many carbs should you eat and what does excess mean? Now, these are great questions that are best defined at the individual level. Well, there, so there, are, there are a lot of people who can eat a high-carb diet from a whole, a whole food-based source. And you know, I, I just happen to be of the opinion that carbs are best earned. If you're carrying around 15 pounds or more of unwanted body fat or you're sedentary or you're pathologically insulin resistant, which is the bad one, then simply put, you don't need carbohydrates, you know, but now before I sound too dogmatic, I'm going to break down two different scenarios. So you could do the high low macronutrient or you do the mixed macronutrient. And just so you know, I will come back and deal with the the entire uh, philosophy around food, why we eat what we eat, what healthy means in part six of this, which is now going to be a part seven part series, but I will come back to that. So, you know, just uh, bear with me for now. So option one, let's talk about a high-low macronutrient diet. So you can eat a high-saturated fat, very low-carb diet, or a high-carb, very low-fat diet and see big improvements in your blood lipids, your insulin tolerance, and your overall visceral fat levels. If this is in a caloric deficit, you will achieve those, uh, those health improvements while also losing weight. And if it's in a caloric excess, you'll still gain weight, muscle if you're exercising, and subcutaneous fat if you're sedentary. But from a metabolic standpoint, your body process the, processes these high or low, 
high low macronutrient diets very well and that the metabolism increases to use up the excess effectively either as energy or for storage. Now, what I'm saying there is if you eat high carbs, very low fat, your body will ramp up and you will burn more carbs. If you eat high fat, low carbs, your body will ramp up and burn more. So you're not storing this stuff as uh, visceral fat, which is all the fat we talked about, those fat cells, are not the subcutaneous fat. That's kind of like just the benign fat that's under your skin that's not really like attractive. Visceral fat is the hormonally active stuff that's in and around your organs. So that's a big distinction to make. I probably should have said that earlier, but better late than never. So please note that if the high fat diet is based predominantly off of polyunsaturated fatty acids, you will likely overeat and you will still have the problems with your insulin sensitivity, visceral fat profile, and body composition. In excess, these are the root problem of dysfunctional adipose tissue. And if the high carb diet is based off of predominantly, so if now we're on the high carb, if your high carb diet is based predominantly off of processed and refined carbohydrates, you're likely going to run into problems with inflammation in the gut, the brain, and the skin while also overeating and putting on significant subcutaneous fat. Most of the, let's say, the preservatives and the things that we put in these junk foods and snack foods and even like the fructose, high fructose corn syrup and all that stuff, A, they're going to be packaged with some type of uh, polyunsaturated fatty acids to keep them more self-storable. But B, those things are what cause problems for your digestion. Now, the added benefit of these types of diets, meaning the high-low macronutrient diets, and why they typically get recommended for weight loss seekers is that by cutting down on the variety of foods you can choose from, you tend to limit the total amount of calories consumed. So when people have fewer options, like if you're only eating fats or you're only eating carb, fat and protein or carbs and protein, you're just less likely to overeat, which means that it's easier to maintain a caloric deficit, which means that you're going to be more likely to lose weight. Now, this simply means that a low-carb or low-fat diet is, is not special for weight loss other than the fact that it makes it hard to overeat. But from a metabolic and health standpoint, as long as you're not eating a bunch of processed carbohydrates or a bunch of polyunsaturated fatty acids, those things are going to work very well for your overall metabolic health. And they may be required for you to heal. So if you are in a sick or a poorly functioning place, you might be best off doing a very high fat, low carb, or very low carb, high fat diet. The question is just what is the best context for you? And I'll come back to that in a second. Now, option two is a mixed macronutrient diet, which is kind of a quote unquote balanced diet of carbs, fats, and proteins. Now, this is where you really have to be mindful of the total type and amount of calories you're eating. So if it's, if you're keeping your total calories in balance or in a deficit, you can have really whatever ratio you'd like. But in a caloric surplus, without some type of muscle engagement, meaning you're actually burning off the stored glycogen, you're going to start putting on weight quickly here. Now, basically, you're asking your body to both metabolize and store two different types of energy sources at the same time. In nature, carbs and fats are rarely present in the same food sources. One of the few exceptions is the mammalian milk, which is inherently designed to override satiation signals and help babies gain weight because they're little and they need to gain weight. Cute little babies. In our modern world, if you're eating excess polyunsaturated fatty acids, this is exacerbating the problem by creating insulin-sensitive fat cells that are simply storing more polyunsaturated fatty acids. The glucose increase from carbs will cause an insulin spike that shoves the blood glucose into adipose tissue while the insulin-sensitive fat cells stop releasing fatty acids. Now, remember, insulin is balancing these two. And if it's insulin selling the fatty acids to stop releasing fat, or insulin selling the fat cells to stop releasing fatty acids, and it's selling the fat cells to pull glucose out, 
you get to a point where you got no glucose in the blood and you got no fatty acids coming out. This leads to inefficiency, energy crashes, cravings, and hypoglycemia. I mean, that kind of like, I feel dead after I'm eating the like brain fog, all the stuff that comes because you've got no energy available. Now, combine this with a sedentary lifestyle that and that leaves adipose tissue, muscle, and liver cells overstuffed with stored in energy, and you end up with a worst case scenario. So, however, on the alternative for this, if the mixed macronutrient diet is built around saturated fats and whole food carbohydrates, i.e., fruits and vegetables, this is not a problem. The saturated fats create the reactive oxygen species that keep the fat cells insulin resistant, meaning that they don't stop releasing fatty acids just because of an insulin spike. And the whole food carbs are harder to overconsume since they're packaged with fiber to slow down digestion and increase satiety. This means that you're less likely to overeat and your body can utilize these substrates efficiently without energy crashes and metabolic dysfunction. So remember, if you're in, it depends, it's, at the end of the day, it comes down to the food you're eating. If you're eating mixed macronutrient diet and you're eating whole foods and saturated fats, you're going to be fine because it's very hard to overdo that. And as long as you're moving, you're going to be fine in general. But when you think about this stuff, if you are eating polyunsaturated fatty acids and processed carbohydrates, those things make it very difficult for you to A, moderate, and B, function uh, in the way you're supposed to. So please keep in mind that it's all about context. If you are lean, active, and eating real foods, you can afford occasional splurges of varying magnitudes, meaning you can have some cheat meals and really get away with some ice cream or whatever you want. If you are metabolically broken, inflamed, overweight, and sick, you simply haven't earned this yet. It's no different than being in debt and wanting to buy a new car. Having nice new things is fun, but if you don't pay your bills off before indulging, you're going to have bigger problems on hand. That's a very good analogy. So if you are not functioning well metabolically, just assume that you're in debt and you get some problems and things to deal with before you can earn a cheat meal and your, let's say, your carbs, so to speak. At the end of the day, the most important decision you have to make is what type of eating style is most realistic for you to stick with consistently. And if you hate counting calories and struggle with moderation, then a low-fat or low-carb diet will likely be the best. If you are more disciplined and value variety in your diet, then a mixed macronutrient diet will work well. Put pain, put plainly. No, you do not need to be on a low-carb or keto diet to be healthy, lose weight, or function optimally. But you also don't need to have a starch or a grain every meal. Like, I remember people, I'm like, you know, so I get to have some meat and meal of vegetables. What starch should I have? What grain should I have? I'm like, uh, none. <laughs> you don't need that. Those things are not required. You don't need those, especially if you're not exercising and earning them. You ultimately, though, get to create your own guidelines. Outside of calories, when you're looking at this, you also have to factor in nutrient density and bioavailability, i.e. getting enough vitamins and minerals to, that, that you need to function well. So while high-carb diets can work, my biggest fear is that you won't get enough of the fats required to actually absorb many of these nutrients, like the fat-soluble vitamins A, D, E, and K. So when it comes down to it, my recommendation, so I'll give you, this is the bottom line. When it comes down to it, my recommendation for overall health, weight loss, and healing is an animal-based, low-carb, high-fat eating style for simplicity, nutrient density, and satiety. But you probably already know that. My thought on simplicity, it's simple. You just eat a handful of foods. It covers your entire bases. It is the most nutrient-dense food, specifically organ meats, if you're really going to do you know, what I'm talking about. And then satiety. It's pretty hard to overeat on steak and ground beef. So another note of importance as we wrap this up is that insulin is not a bad thing. 
So while striving for more, a mostly consistent blood glucose and insulin level is a good thing, living life through the events or through the lens of in, avoid insulin spikes at all times is not healthy or necessary. Ideally, you'll be able to enjoy sweet treats like ice cream or pizza in moderation in life. I mean, that, like, right? That's the goal, right? To have a have a little bit of ice cream, have some pizza, and not die. <laughs> so when you eat these. A healthy response is a sharp insulin spike that clears out excess blood glucose and then goes away over the span of an hour or so, or less, ideally. This is your body's built-in mechanism for managing sugar. If you eat something like honey or fruit, you will have an insulin spike. Well, maybe not fruit as much. That's uh, fructose. That's a different story. But if you have uh, honey or some type of carbohydrate like rice, you will have a spike and it comes back down. It comes back down. And that's how it's supposed to work. And... If you are interested, a little side note, if you're interested in really diving deep into your health, the absolute best thing you can do is get a continuous glucose monitor to wear for like a two or four week period. I just finished my first two week trial and I'm going to go back and do a few more months. This allows you to track your blood glucose in real time as you respond to meals, sleep, exercise, and cold showers, which interesting. I learned that a 15 second cold shower has a dramatic response on lowering my blood glucose over the rest of the day. It's crazy. Just even a short shower. If you're interested in doing this, NutriSense is my recommended company for doing this. The information and service you receive makes this a no-brainer and a bargain. And they have a nutritionist who works with you. It's unbelievable. I cannot encourage this decision enough. I think the two-week at the time I did it was 175, so it's very reasonable in terms of the amount of stuff you're getting because typically these continuous glucose monitors are like thousands of dollars or you need insurance and the doctors know to get them. It's crazy. But... So the issue is not the insulinogenic foods themselves, eating them every once in a while. The issue is when you make a habit out of eating them all the time. So while all carbs get broken down to the same substrates, the refined and processed carbohydrates do so much more quickly than the whole food carbohydrates. And many of these have been created in a lab or they basically hijack your satiety and craving mechanisms so that you have a really hard time managing them without overeating. So out Outside of the impact of this repetitive insulin spike has, these foods are really problematic for your gut and your digestion. They cause inflammation in the brain and they have a negative impact on your blood pressure and your cardiovascular endothelial function. Stuff we'll talk about in a future section. And I think you can see why I decided to break this up because you probably would be going insane if we were in breaking, going on down that different pathway now. But finally, I'll wrap this up with the most important take-home notes. So carb addiction is a real thing for many people. While the brain might not make structural changes like it would in a real addictive substance like a drug or something, the insulin spike mitigates cortisol release in the body and functions as a natural stress reliever. That's why the late night sweet tooth or the glass of wine is such a hard habit to kick. Ultimately though, if you really wanted to lose weight or optimize your health, you must incorporate lifestyle changes. You have to address the stressors in your life you have to get better sleep and you have to make more nutrient-dense food choices in your diet. The easiest way to start this is to cut out corn, wheat, soy, processed sugar, vegetable oils, seed oils. Just cut those out. If you do that in the context of adding activity to your daily routine, start with small walks, you are well on your way to a brighter future of vitality and optimal health. And yes, while these changes are not easy, it truly is that simple. All right, that is all I will entertain you with or bore you with, whatever your perspective is for today. I'm going to dig deep and go back into the endothelial function and understand the, card, the cardiovascular side of things for the next portion. 
portion. But if you got value from this and you enjoyed it, please subscribe, leave me a review, uh, and share this with someone who would otherwise benefit from this. It took a lot of time and effort, which I'm happy to do, but it's always nice to know that it's uh, reaching people who otherwise need it. Um, apart from that, if you do have any questions or want to implement this in your own life, I am a nutrition coach. And I do a lot of work with people that are in these same situations and trying to improve their overall health and their vitality and their metabolic function. If you're interested in that or have any questions, shoot me a message at via email at admin, A-D-M-I-N, at gramtuttle.com, G-R-A-H-A-M-T-U-T-T-L-E.com. And I would love to talk to you more then. Otherwise, thank you so much for listening. I appreciate you and your time. Share this with someone who needs it, and I will talk to you again sometime soon. Take care. Thank you.